My name's uh, Jeremy Walker. I'm a composer and a pianist, 50 years old. Uh, but this is not a podcast about music. It's not a podcast about me. It happens to be about my dad. His name's Tom Walker. Uh, he started his own company when he was 22 years old. He was started as an accountant. He expanded into small business consulting, uh, negotiations, everything that goes along with that. Um, for the past 30 plus years, he's devoted himself to trying to answer for how small independent businesses run by iconoclastic people, not deliberately so, but by their nature, can survive and thrive outside of what he would call the crushing conformity of uh, our time and our economy. Uh, I heard about this stuff all the time when I was a kid, and I wasn't particularly interested in business, and frankly, I'm still not, but he is a passionate, provocative, uh, difficult, committed person, and uh, he's written a book called The Thirty Years' War, but that doesn't begin to capture the energy and uh, the spirit of what he's talking about, so I decided, well, let's do a podcast about this, and I never really wanted to talk about it, but we're going to, and that's what the podcast is called. It's called, Do We Really Have to Talk About This? And the answer is yes. Well, we're, we're back talking about things that we don't always want to talk about. Um, this is number five, I think. We're going to debate and argue, and uh, I'll turn it over to to my dad, Tom. Well, this time I'll take up what I loosely call economic savvy. Uh, the latter subject's a source of knowledge, managing uh, the mastery or the bills, so I prefer to think of those like bill. Planning a mastery approach, or in a mastery approach, and a professional management model, and finally a mastery, mastery model. Yet I choose economic savvy because it is such a large part of the Bill's story and, in my view, part of the problem in what I now call the Todd, Todd story. I have to say what happened to Bill, especially as I look back, comes as a surprise to me. I was so certain at the time, a while I'll perhaps explain later, but the insight I was given was the surprise. You see, back in 1969, I was putting the finishing touches for the CPA exam. About two months before the exam, I was startled to find I knew nothing about interest, what it does, how it affects decisions, and so on. Without a college degree, my odds of passing the exam were 25 to 1 against. Married only four years, a son aged two, a house bought in 1968. I didn't think this was any place for chance. I went to the professor leading the six-month review course for the exam. In a panic, I explained the problem. He quickly recommended this book, The Capital Budgeting Decision, written by Bierman and Smith. I was working 50 hours a week, besides 20 hours to finish my three years of self-study. I still stopped and added this book. I swallowed it. What still sticks with me as though we were yesterday was their observation on the deal, Beerman and Smith's observation on the deal between the Indians and the Dutch for Manhattan Island. It was said the Indians were cheated. That's what I'd already read in history. 
The fact was Dutch depositories were paying 6% interest at the time, compounded semi-annually, and had done so continuously for over 300 years. What that meant is that if they had taken the guilders, I think that's Dutch currency at the time, instead of jewelry, 300 years later, they, with compound interest, they would have had enough to buy back the island, including or with most of the development. I saw this as a big deal. To me, 6% was and remains a benchmark of interest rates. So when Bill Steele came along, I can't explain why it was 10 years before I seized the economic reality, yet it was time to act. The reason is this, high interest rates suppress or even collapse asset prices. Uh, but maybe the asset usefulness is unchanged. Put it this way, when the price may be in the tank, its value was not. Uh, I may belabor this point, but it's worth it, if it and it warrants it. Opportunities like Bill's are part of the reason positively and to avoid the problem we saw in the Todd story, which is more common and may be crucial to the health, if not the survival, of Todd-type companies or Todd-type Todd situations. Here's why. Asset prices are not independent of interest rates. I tell you nothing new there. What seems to drive action is the payment. Thus, increased asset prices bought or compensated for by lower payments because of lower interest rates. The problem is asset price is not the same thing as asset value. Price is not the same thing as value, I repeat. A house gaining in price in times of low rates does not increase in value. That is, it's not in a better location, doesn't have more rooms, more desirable features. It simply costs more. To be a bit pedantic, low interest rates, easy credit, raise asset prices. They do not change value. To a lesser degree or extreme degree, price greatly exceeds value then. Finally, what drives higher is euphoria, and along with that, the fear of missing out on the, the gains. The fact is, higher and higher continues until it doesn't. But if you have a winner, whoever wants to sell out. High interest rates, on the other hand, and scarce credit create lower asset prices. Then the value begins to exceed its price, and that's one of the keys to the bill's story. Finally, it drives prices well below value. To drag on a bit, price is not the same thing as value. And I hear that those terms used carelessly. The value of my house is, well, we may know the price. The value is a different question. Finally, when prices drop well below value, the stated fear is one doesn't know how much lower it will go, so we don't buy. To which I say, it doesn't matter. What matters is how well the thing works. So what prediction did I make for Bill, and what would I have told Todd? The prediction is predicting the economy. Yet I cannot, and what I used then and would use still is 12% interest is temporary, since it's not six. So when the asset prices were crushed, crushed it was time to buy. In the Bill's, Bill's case, the asset the interest rates were 20%. Normally, over 300 years, 6% is six is a good number. But when rates went to 20%, as was the case in the bill story, that was obviously 
conclusively not normal. What Bill paid for assets was fixed. The interest rates could and did drop later. Taking Todd through this kind of reasoning would have been tough. He wanted to buy. Rates were very low. I could no, offer no prediction of problems since other than the certain other than the certainty that problems happen. Following Ecclesiastes age seven, I could not know what would happen, and so I could not know when. But I advise against buying high unless I can hedge the risk and easily sell. So what would I have advocated for Todd? Simple. Pass. Don't do it. My opinion is amendable because it is what he wanted. And provided he built a model to see how much he could afford to be wrong if trouble came, whether he could be wrong and still have, still do so without dismantling the company, then he was free to make what I would regard as not an economic, economically savvy decision. It is a model, and there's a noble history of the company, even to his industry and likely in his firm's past. I could have identified the extent to which an adjustment would have been possible and how much damage it would do. The problem that it hit was COVID. Nobody could predict that, but the specific cause of surprise is unimportant. What is important is whether one will prepare for what one can't know. The specifics of what one can know. The principle, Proverbs 10.25 applies when trouble comes, when the crisis passes. What is bad is no more, and what is right prospers. And that's really critical if you think about the Bill's story as well as others. The economy and prediction, well, I admit that I'm personally adverse to financial risk. I justify that since most of the risk arises from well-intentioned or otherwise government actions which drive down interest rates and increase credit supply. Greenspan called those actions a tinderbox. It is my odd view, normal a deviation from a 6% normal. That said, I sold our house in 2004 and missed out on the peak. I sold my position in the stock market in 2006, which after, the mark, after which the market rose 20% before collapsing in 2008. To show you how precise my predictions are, in March of 2009, I thought the market hit at a bottom at around 7,000, so it was, was 14.5 and down about 7,000. I bought. And in 30 days, I lost 20% of asset value in those stocks. <laughs> the worst one I sold four months later at a 300% gain. Well, that does not, however, suggest the bottom is the best place or that it is always necessary to wait for the absolute ideal of value. Building our house in 2012, I did not find the bottom. What I found is what works in our home budget. That's very pragmatic, this, practical. I'm going to interrupt a little bit. Um, it seems like there's three intertwined but distinct meanings. If you're talking about, what you say, economic timing, if you're talking about Bill, that... Uh, 
this is going to be tricky to tease out because what you're talking about is really dense. Yes. If you're talking about investing, that's not your work. No, it isn't. So that's got a different question, it would seem. And a house is another question. And Bill, or starting a foundry, or... or, or uh, I'm trying to come up with the, the, the... I understand that there are parts of the same question. I think I understand that anyway. But if I think about a farmer, which I think is a, a great analogy for this stuff, economic timing is a thing, but he's still got a plant. Well, <laughs> you, you've nailed uh, you know, the three distinct, if you will, applications of economic savvy. Uh, one of them is investing within or for your business or either exist as exists or to start one. Uh, the second I raise somewhat quietly is about a home. I don't know that economic savvy is that critical. If you can afford, if it fits within your budget, it's where you live. It's not, I don't regard it as an investment, but as a place to live. Sure. The third possibility is things that are not at all related to uh, your owning a business, such as uh, putting money into the stock market or bonds. Um, those have certain volatilities attached to them. I uh, and and if I buy an asset and pay too much in a business, I I pretty much am stuck. If I buy stock and discover that uh oh, this looks kind of bad, there's a couple of things I could do. One, I could sell. I can't do that in my business assets without right. losing the business. <coughs> um, yeah, I think that's critical. I probably don't have time to discuss various ways of, of hedging against downside risk in any of the three cases, but we'll get there. Okay. I just wanted to kind of... It's, it's good. That's a good question. Yeah, okay. I'll let you yeah, continue with that then, where you were, I guess. All right. Uh, so for companies like the Bill story, outside of the extremes of financial hazard, say asset prices driven by 3% or less Fed rate, then move forward calculating the cost of being wrong. If you must buy, then it's common. The appeal of low interest rates, easy credit is powerful. If you must buy, then at least calculate the cost of being wrong and therefore your means of surviving being wrong. I think it's easier to understand that when you're, when interest rates are below 6% and they are well below that, this is hazardous territory, it may be hard to sit still. But if you can't, it's an emotional issue, then sit still. So then you move forward to calculating the cost of being wrong and the means of surviving through it. Still in the back of my mind, sometimes to the front of it is 1 Timothy 6.10, which says that if the pressure is driven by the love of money, then watch out. Yet in all that, money isn't capital, another side subject. What is capital is knowledge acted upon. And that's the significance of the bill story. And, and I'll leave that for a much larger discussion later. The Fed's role in all this is remarkable. 
The first question is, to what extent and over what time uh, can we their forecast we count on for action? That seems like another topic too. Can we, can you mark that you're there? Because I have some questions that I, I want to ask here. Yeah. Um, if this is really dense, so if you're talking about Bill, yeah, it really surprises me. <laughs> it's, I, I mean, this is like James Joyce, but business or something. It's a there's a lot of layers here. If I think about it, even Bill is a little bit remote because understanding. I mean, he had a job. He was presumably more or less paying his personal bills, being a rep or a salesman or whatever. So there is a extra or something beyond utility that he's doing. We'll cover that. It's really a critical question. But let's get back to it. I like the, the farm analogy because it, there, that's the whole thing. I mean, without the food and we're kind of done and there was until, what, 100 years ago, most of us were farmers on some level or 200 years. I don't know what it is. Industrial Revolution changes that. But um, the crop's got to grow in the ground and it's got to come out of the ground. And what the Fed did or the feudal lord or whatever it was at the not under your conditions really doesn't change the fact that the crop's going to go in. So you're talking about understanding what can go wrong and how you can survive it when once the crop is at least theoretically in the ground so that to me is talking about something that you did for clients not the client something that clients were able to bring to it <clears throat> i mean i'm I, no, I'll give you a side story uh some years ago during harvest i did something i never did but i did it i called up one of the farmers a large farmer I could hear the sound, and he was in his combine, and he was combining corn. And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm combining corn. And I said, oh, I'm really doing the important stuff. Ha, ha, ha. I'm making sure that all of all the stuff fits together, that it even is worth your bothering harvesting the corn. I was joking. Sure. He said, you're right. I'm free to harvest now without worrying about that because I know that we take care of it beforehand. I regard that as a, an interesting point. Now, with respect to farmers have to have land, there are several ways to get land on which to farm. One of the truisms is that the land will always be planted. Now that's interesting. It may be that you're planting on somebody else's land. And in the large farmers in Minnesota, uh, about, uh, I don't remember the exact number, what would it be, six, one, more than, about three quarters of the land they farm, they, they, they rent from other landowners. Usually, and not always, but often, that of farmers who once farmed and who have retired. So, yeah, the, the, the crop goes in the ground, it must, there's demand for it. You don't actually have to own the ground. There may be some advantages, but there's a deep 
if you will, emotional, personal connection to owning land. And um, there's a certain, if you, if you can get in right, well, that's part of this argument, then there's a certain hedge against any kind of difficulty. If you own the land cheaply enough, we'll cover that in a bit. I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to... Uh, this isn't easy stuff. Well, I mean, no, it isn't. And it's... Except I would say this. If I can get one point across, price is not the same thing as value. See, that's what I was just going to return to, because that's almost the... Having grown up in this kind of uh, environment myself, I mean, hearing these kind of things, they're almost uh, 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 instinctive. Uh, houses, we all know that the housing market is nuts right now. And uh, almost on a cellular level, I wouldn't own. So I rent my house. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there are many people I know who are surprised that I'm happy to rent a house instead of own it. And aside from the fact I, it's somebody else's problem, which suits me. Uh, it's, I live in it the same, but I'm on, I couldn't make it work that, uh, say I have 5% down on a $300,000 house. So I'm essentially renting it from the bank, but I'm on the hook for all the maintenance. And that sounds like a bad deal. Particularly when interest rates are low. And I'm, I'm focusing on the second part of this. First, price is not value. The second part is how do we know what's happening? Look at 6%. Is that the best number? It's the best number I know of. It has a 300-year authoritative history. So anything that's well less than six, aha, you're going to have price inflation, meaning price will, will go, rise up above value. Anything well above six, you might have a price that's well below value, the bill story. I've, uh, Very well, simple positions. Now, as I said about the Todd story, if Todd, Todd insists on pursuing that for whatever compulsion he feels, chance, my last chance is the chance of a lifetime, yada, yada, I can't argue with what is important to him. My only question and is to say, understand these two things. If you understand these two things, let's look at the third one. Let's suppose that you're wrong enough that not only do you not achieve what you wanted, you will lose what you already have. And there are remedies for understanding those risks and remedies for offsetting those risks. So that we're getting at something that I think is uh, widely misunderstood or at least not considered. Well, we're not getting at it. We're at it. The price versus value. And I'll go back to I only I don't understand much outside of a narrative. My house works the same whether I spent a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand. It does the same thing for me. In my case, it's also where I work, so there's slightly different proposition there, although not much. Uh, and I think that the idea is a lots of more expensive house. It's a better house, and I learned to measure it in terms of function, but. And function only moves a little bit. I mean, and 
it, it's more or less uh, uh, synonymous with value. Yes, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's synonymous with value. I mean, in 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 Bill's case, and there's there's a number of others. I just that's just one story I picked yeah. out. The, the question is whether he paid uh, two hundred thousand or two and a half million dollars for this package of equipment. Same package. Mm-hmm. Two hundred thousand is less. It's very simple. In other words, he has, in a, in a business startup or in a crisis later on, he has he has more durability. So, and that's the, the subset I was trying to get at, and you got to it. So when you're talking to, I mean, all these stories, you, I guess Todd wasn't a client, but there's 50 years. He's representative of, of yeah, yeah. He's representative of a client. And with you, there's 50 years of clients. Yeah, a couple of hundred. Yeah, uh, and your role is, uh, I think it's hard to understand what a consultant does, and I hate the word consultant. Well, you know, um, I had a critic uh, lose his temper at me, and he described me as... Uh, as uh, cantankerous, and so when a client says, "Oh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime," such as Todd, and and I offer my resistance, I'm cantankerous. But beneath that, there's a layer of certain things. Uh, um, you know, first, uh, such uh, uh, such as uh, a common criticism, which is, "Well, you're already, you're before you say anything, you're already prepared." Yeah, I, I, I think I'm sort of sort of supposed to be. I'm supposed to be prepared. And second, I'm not supposed to determine whether you want this. I'm supposed to determine whether this this works for you in ways that you might not have wanted to consider. I mean, the reality is, gee whiz, 3% interest, how could you go wrong? That's how we think about this. But if you understand it's imp- that, that there are two things that are true about it, uh, one of them, it does impact the price of something. The price will be higher than its value, and if you're in business, value is its ability to produce your product. Mm-hmm. In, a, in an affordable, competitive, timely way. So, it's not simple stuff. But the what is really far more difficult is the consequence of Finding out you were wrong, and the agony that goes through. I've sat in too many meetings with lenders, with attorneys, especially with with clients, and the meetings are stained with tears. Lenders' tears. President of one of the major divisions of a major bank over the deal that we were we were uh, advising is. Uh, debtor on lost his job I happened to run into him years later he did not have the same prestige or job um, you know and, and, and the client's sitting there and all of his hopes and dreams are, are going up in smoke and they did and you know it's, it's easy to say well when it works it's great yeah it is 
It's easy to say it's something I want. I tell the clients, look, uh, uh, my job is for you to be able to do whatever you want and survive doing it. Okay. That's great. That's, that's the secret. Well, and I know that one of the sore points around these topics is you do all this for peop- with people, for people, however you want to say it, and they say, yeah, but what do you do? Well, that's a good question. Well, but I, it's not a question that has a, 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 a tagline that answers it. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast was uh, um, turn the light on a little bit about how, how dense this stuff is. Yeah, I mean it because I, I mean from a from a uh, take the farmer again. This is not a super sophisticated business. Um, all kinds of pressures, as you said, I think a couple of podcasts ago. You know, maybe thirty, forty cycles, and you have to get them right. You won't get them all right, um, even if you eliminate. Uh, political antagonism, which there always is, no matter what the system, even if you could have everything perfect, there'd still be weather, there'd still be all the other things. So there's just a huge amount of pressure. So in the answer to what you do, uh, you know, the answer is kind of, listen to this. (laughs) You said it succinctly. Uh, They're free to do what their job the way they want the way they see best yeah and you test and uh question and well then when these things come up what we propose is that and then we've been able to do this since oh my word mid-70s so it's been a long time yeah as we build a model and with that model, the client can look. We put it on the big screen because it changes your feel of the thing. And the client can put in things that he supposes might have it and show the effect on several things. One, does he go out and run out of cash? Is his debt ratio to, to become too high relative to his collateral base? It's, does his return on assets shrink below the cost of money? Very, And he can just... He can see that, and then he can look and say, well, you know, I don't think that's really going to happen. That's up to him. It's so, not up to me. Because I don't know. Right. When I turn to the, you know, the prediction, the role of the Fed in the economy, it becomes clear. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to run, I want to get an analogy for this or a, or a, a narrative for this that makes it, clear, at least to me, hopefully for people listening, if if you're, let's go back to the farmer and you've got 40 cycles, right? Planting harvest cycles, let's call it that. Or 50 if you want to, I don't know how many. Well, as decision be. makers, most of them basically have 30 cycles, 30 years. Okay, so how many, do you know or have a solid estimate of how many years are just doomed by weather, drought, heat, whatever it is? It's an interesting question. Uh, I, I don't have st- statistics on my sense mm-hmm. or what that's worth. Is I think there are in a career, an ownership career, three to five, somewhere between three to five critical junctures. Mm-hmm. 
things that fall, such as things that fall upon them, such as uh, economic issues, um, such as some sort of internal uh, schism, um, such as natural disaster. Okay? Sure. So three to five. So that's you know out of out of the farmer. I typically say he's the chief decision maker for at the outside thirty cycles. So that's not very many, but it is enough to take you down. Sure. I mean, it. it uh, and there, when I get it, and the part of that is the reaction of other of other of the other people involved. Sure. I've got a, if I've got a lender involved, then they operate under certain rules uh, imposed by the Fed. But more than that, there's their sense or feeling for risk is quite different. Some of the other things we did, such as in, say, an office building, um, we, the lender's response was, well, you know, yeah, you're buying it really cheap, and we were, but, and there's their but, but we don't know how much lower it's going to go. My response in that situation is to say, look, if everything goes that low, if we still beat everybody in town. We can have the lowest rents in town. We can still fill the building while everybody else is starving and we'll be profitable. So filling the building is, now you're talking about the functional, the function. That's it. Which well is the said. actual value. Yeah. I mean, tenants paying rent, you know, and, and, and so you get that sort of reaction. One of them, which was almost prescient, I guess, that's a funny word, but prescient was one lender said, because I went around and found what their sense as lenders, what their reaction was. And, and one of them said, well, yeah, but people, uh, people aren't going to be working in offices anymore. They're always going to be working at home. And therefore, the office buildings are doomed. Well, uh, we could argue that. And clearly, with COVID, we saw that sort of happen. Uh, to what extent that's going to continue to be true, I don't know. I have some pet theories, but they're just theories, or, sure. uh, which is to say, look, rents are way too high now. So I don't want to, if I have somebody work out a home and that works, that's cheaper. All right. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a big deal, but uh, whatever. But I also say on the other side that uh, people are essentially social creatures and working at home is pretty isolationist mm -hmm. not many people can handle that over a long period of time mm -hmm. okay so i think we're i mean i'm going to stick on this point for the rest of the cast because if we get into this federal stuff we're already at 35 minutes and it's just not <laughs> well the, the, that's fine i would say this the the purpose of my going into the federal stuff is the whole issue of prediction but I mean, everybody, and, 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 and I wanted to address that because expert prediction is, is what shall we say, not reliable, I'm including mine. I'm making the assumption that I stand in for the listener, and, uh, and I don't think we're all ready we for need prediction. We need different listeners. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to understand... And I hope this isn't too uh, obtuse of me, but or I'm trying to have it be understood <coughs> that we take 
the function of a business or the function of a person, the, the, uh, the uh, work of a person, not the function, the work of a person is a given. Bill was going to produce parts in his foundry. A farmer's going to plant. Um, uh, a musician's going to play. Whatever it is, and it that exists in a. I want, I'll, I'll keep it with the farmer. So he's got thirty cycles. Say five of them are going to present major challenges uh, or major changes, uh, and the rest are going to be mediocre. Uh, I would assume a, a really gangbuster year is going to be as much of a crisis as a, uh, but that's a can of worms. <laughs> we shouldn't have done a, it. A, a friend of mine called me, this is several years ago, and he said, I just got my tax return from thus and so CPA from one of the big eight at that time. I said, oh, what's up? He said, well, I owe a million and a half dollars. <laughs> My immediate response was, that's wonderful. Because right. it tells me how much money you must have made. And he said, that's why I called you. <laughs> okay, so. But this tends to run toward heavy asset-based decisions. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That does not exclude decisions that are not heavy asset-based. Because. And, and, and I didn't tune it that way, but maybe later on I, I, I will address that issue. Um, I just want to say this. When interest rates are really low, it superheats things. Mm -hmm. And when interest rates are really high, it crushes them. Realities don't change other than the reaction we have to those realities. So if my business is not a so-called, not a capital-intensive business. Um, look, if I got a bunch of people around uh, and we don't have revenue, I got a real problem. And, and we'll talk about the issue that uh, I mentioned it in Todd's story, that they do cutbacks. The cutbacks come in, in, in your mission-critical people, your most skilled people. That is short of top management. Right. Which means... You know, you've cut away muscle. Mm -hmm. And as in the Todd story, man, it's two to three people to fill that hole if you really can. And sure. I don't think you really can without diminishing the product, the value proposition, if you will, that you're making to your customer. See, this is what I... I keep doing these questions because it gives the sense of what you do. And... Well, let me know when you find out. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's clear. You know, it, if I can sum it up, it would be uh, context and and clarity, because it reminds me of when they went down to the Colorado River or whatever, and they calculated water usage based on a record wet year, and said, "Oh, this will this will work out," and of course it doesn't and and the same could be true you, you, they would never damned it if there had been a dry year we get into the question of how much weight we can put on accepted opinion especially consensus opinion of all, among experts and I will get into that yeah I know but for the for the 
functionary in a business, the guy driving the tractor or making the decisions, not necessarily driving the tractor, but making the decisions. I think that people sense the density of the questions and have no real way. I mean, you could lay all the tools on them, but it takes an outside look that's founded on the principle of this is about this person doing their work. It's not about you making their decisions. It's about them doing their work, which often is making the decisions. Um, I haven't worked for anybody over the decades where the implications of these decisions weren't personal, highly personal. And uh, one of the things they pursue, and I don't recall if I covered it in the Bill story, but I'm going to pick it up later when I get into how do you deal, what's, what's a bill like? Um, the most common motive I've seen among clients is they look at the future and they decide that they need to take action now and for sake of reducing a risk they see in the future. That's highly personal. That risk as it affects them or especially affects their family. Um, that's what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And so we work in this environment with these wonderful magnificent things, experts. Then we get to when we get into the Fed, I mean they have several hundred economists and what, should we say, buckets of data, more than buckets, not even gigabytes anymore, not even not even trigabytes of data. And they come out and arrive and, you know, here's where we are, here's where we're going, here's what we ought to do. And I, the, the closest I saw on how that works out is something that came up the other day. The Park Service is taking down certain signs in Glacier National Park. The signs say, this is this year, they're taking the signs down. The signs say the glaciers will be gone by the year 2020. The glaciers aren't gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that chicanery? Perhaps so. Is it the best expert guess? Maybe. Is it, look, you're going to get along, you better go along. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of it. And the businesses I represent are, they've waited for the opportunity to do something. And when the banker says, boy, we'd like to do your loan and the interest rates are low and so forth, they come with excitement. Frankly, it scares the daylights out of me. All right. Well, I think uh, that's a lot. Okay. And obviously, these are dense questions, difficult subjects. I hope that the uh, impression that's coming off is the level of work and experience behind all this. And that's that's what I'm trying to bring out. And that's why we're we're talking about this. So we'll continue next time. And as usual, it's my dad, Tom Walker. You can go to, what the, what's the website again? PraxisBusinessLabs.com. So that's P-R-A-E-X-I-S. Yeah, PraxisBusinessLabs.com. And uh, I hope you keep listening. Mm-hmm.